You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hey, this is Lenny Goldberg, and thank you for joining me. You know, one of the difficult aspects of uh, doing this podcast is that I have to read the news a lot, more than I'd like to, because it means you have to read the filthy tabloids like Haaretz, which is Israel's version of the New York Times, they wish. And not far behind, Haaretz is the Times of Israel, also known as the Slimes of Israel. As you might have read, the IDF had a huge operation in Jenin, which is in northern Shomron, because everybody knows that's the Ir Miklat, that's like the place of refuge for terrorists. That's where the terror, that's where a lot of terror emanates from. And there were real gun battles over there. And this is their headline in the slimes of Israel. Palestinian death toll rises to 12. The IDF says it carried out an airstrike against gunmen stationed in West Bank City. So they call it the Palestinian death toll as these are poor innocent Arabs being killed when actually they're Arab terrorists armed to the teeth in Janine. And the Arabs who are shooting at the soldiers, they're called gunmen, gunmen, as in gunman, but it's men, gunmen. They're just men with guns. You know, I wouldn't care if it's the USA Today, newspapers like that reporting this way, but fellow Jews in an Israel paper calling them gunmen, and we already have Aretz. Can't we have one newspaper that's a little bit normal and not with a left-wing slant? Like I said, I don't expect anything from the CNN, for instance, who, by the way, when an Arab last week rammed his car into Jews in Tel Aviv, and then he got out of the car and stabbed them, and afterwards this Arab was shot. What was the headline in the CNN? Car driver shot by Israeli citizen. That was the headline. Okay, that's the CNN, the BBC, and all the alphabet soup. We have enough of that. Okay, I don't expect anything from them. But you figure an Israeli newspaper, come on. But I guess it doesn't really matter if it's Israeli and not Israeli, Jewish and not Jewish. At the end of the day, if you're a journalist, you slant to the left. That's just your predilection because, because you're an artsy type. You're a creative person. So you're liberal in your very nature. Just like the actors in Hollyweird, just like the entertainers and the musicians, 99%, if they're politically inclined, they're always to the left. Now, just going back to that raid in Janine last week, I'm going to read what it says here just to know what happened. This is what it said in the article. IDF troops are finding explosive labs and weaponry. The refugee camp is becoming an industrial lab for weapons. Now, by the way, they call this place in Janine a refugee camp. It's not a refugee camp. It's a neighborhood in Janine where the UN controls it. So they call it a refugee camp. Anyway, it continues the article. The northern West Bank city of Janine has long been considered by the IDF as a hotbed of terrorism. Okay, that's the situation. And that's why Bibi was making big statements that we went into Janine and we're going to keep fighting the terror and we're going to go back if we have to. And by the way, just the other day, another Jew was murdered right near Kidumim. It's just an everyday occurrence, not to talk about rocks being thrown, mild of cocktails. This is going on all the time. And a lot of this Arab scum, they come out of Janine. So we have a situation in Israel where you have terror cities in our midst, cities of terror. And the IDF occasionally goes in on these raids, puts out some fires and, and leaves. And then when the terror attacks they intensify again, They'll go on another raid. That's how it works. There's no, there's no goal here 
to actually finish him off. Because to finish him off, you got to throw him out. You have to raise the entire city. What did we hear Jonathan Pollard say last week? You have to throw the Arabs out of there and put the Jews in there and repopulate northern Shomron. Anyway, as the newspapers reported, a lot of the weapons that the IDF recovered, they were weapons hidden under and in the mosques. Yeah, the mosques. And this was the subtitle of an article in the uh, Times of Israel. It said like this, IDF reports, Palestinian gunmen fortified Janine Mosque, dug tunnel underneath. So these mosques, actually they're fortresses. They're terror bunkers. You see, for Arabs, the mosque, it's not like a synagogue. An Arab doesn't have to pray in a mosque. You'll see an Arab playing on the sidewalk anywhere. He'll pull out some shmata and pray on it towards Mecca. He doesn't need the mosque to pray. Again, it's not a place of prayer like a synagogue is for Jews. Because according to Islam, you can pray anywhere you want. So for them, what's a mosque? A mosque is how they mark off their territory. When there's a mosque, that's a sign that they rule that area. That's how they stake out their territory, you see. And the mosque has another role. It's the place where the terror comes from. See, that's where the ideology emanates. The war against the infidels, it's emanating from that mosque. That's the role of the mosque. So when I hear people say, you have to respect all religions, and how could Baruch Goldstein kill Arabs praying in a mosque? How can you kill people while they're praying? Well, because it's from the mosque where they get their religious fervor in the first place to kill Jews. It's precisely from the mosque where the incitement comes from. And speaking of Arab terror, did you see what happened in France? The streets and the stores and the shopping malls going up in flames by the Arab rioters? Now, the news calls this some kind of protest, you know, a George Floyd-style protest. But that's not what it is. It's a jihad. It's their holy war against Europe. I mean, they're yelling, Allah Akbar, Allah is great, as they're rioting through the streets of France. Because this isn't some isolated thing here. Their goal is to kill the infidels. They want to conquer France and make it an Islamic state. And then it's not going to end in France. It's going to spread to Sweden and Germany. They're next. Now, they'll have trouble conquering Eastern Europe because those countries in Eastern Europe are much more normal and they're not friars and they're nothing like the liberal countries like France and Germany who are just the easy pickings for a jihad. But that's how the Arabs work. They do it in stages. First, they arrive. They set up their kihilah, their communities, their mosques, and their kihilah get stronger. And then they start to have these massive prayer sessions. And little by little, they take over. And all the time they're doing it, they're staking out their territory with their mosques. So in Israel, we also have an Arab population, just a little bit, right? And they're also waiting to do what they did in France. Of course they are. And we just continue kicking the can down the road, not really taking proactive measures to do anything about it. But we know at one point, the cat's going to come out of the bag. In essence, they already have. Speaking of religious zealotry, on the positive side, we also have religious zealots, like Pinchas. This last week's Parsha was Parsha Pinchas. We just read it a couple of days ago. And Pinchas... Yeah, he was a zealot. And it's this Pasha, Pasha Pinchas, where we learn the concepts of nikama, vengeance. The concept of vengeance is often tied to the biblical figure of Pinchas because of what he did when he killed Zimri. And the Torah says explicitly, 
Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron the Kohen, Pinchas the son of Elazar, the son of Aaron the priest, Kina et Kinati, he was a zealot for my sake. Rashi says, what does it mean he was zealous for my sake? He avenged my revenge. Yes, revenge is a glorious concept in Judaism. Why is vengeance, though, such a lofty concept that we call Hashem El Nekamot Hashem, the God of vengeance? Because as long as there's evil in the world, the average guy says, hey, where's God? The evil people are running wild. They're succeeding. Nothing's happening to them. No repercussions. And the average person says, Ain Dean, Ain Dayan, there's no judge, there's no justice here, there must not be a God. There's nobody supervising anything because the evil are prospering. Only when there's vengeance, when there's vengeance, then people say, whoa, Yesh Dean, Yesh Dayan, the bad guy got what he deserves. But when he doesn't get what he deserves, people start to say, where's God? Like after the Holocaust. That's why the tzaddikim want vengeance. And that's what King David meant when he wrote in his psalm, Yismach tzaddik ki chazanakam. Happy is the man who sees vengeance. He washes his hands in the blood of the wicked. Why though? Why? Because we like to see blood? No. King David continues, Because then man will say, Yes, there is a reward for the tzaddik. There is a God who judges the earth. Only after this vengeance and the wicked fall, then the average person will say, hey, there is a judge. There is a reward for the righteous. There is a God who rules the world. That's the deeper reason why vengeance is a glorious thing. And to show just how important and great vengeance is, what's interesting is that the reward Pintchas received, right at the outset of the Pasha, he gets a reward from God. And what is that? A brit shalom. As the verse says, I have given him a covenant of peace, a brit shalom. So think about that. When a Jew goes out and he does nikama, he gets a brit shalom. He receives the covenant of peace. Now how does that work? Why should Pinchas be given of all things the brit shalom, the covenant of peace? Wouldn't it have been more appropriate to give him the covenant of zealousness or the covenant of saving Israel from the plague, something like that. No, isn't Pinchas's act where he killed somebody the absolute opposite of what today we call peace? So the question is, what is peace? I mean, in the Jewish sense, because today we know what it means. It means shaking hands with evil. And the more evil he is, the greater the peace. Because after all, you make peace with your enemies, right? So the modern concept of peace is peace and shalom and salam being photographed on the White House lawn with Arafat. In other words, today, the distorted concept of peace means that you come to terms or you make peace with evil. Just look how well peace works in the Western sense. The Oslo Peace Accords, more blood has been spilled in that peace than any war. I mean, if that's peace, then what's war? So this idea of peace and tolerance... That brings the greatest tragedies of all. That's Neville Chamberlain saying peace in our time. That's what the West means when they make peace, making peace with evil. But let's get back to the Jewish concept of peace. So what we have to do is rescue the concept of peace the way it's defined today. Pinchas' act of killing Zimri and afterwards meriting 
the Brit Shalom, it teaches us that the Torah's way of bringing peace is by making the world a better place. And the first step in making the world a better place is to wipe out evil. As it says, Somera, depart from evil, and then do Tov, Vaset Tov. That's Psalms 34. On the other hand, making peace with evil, or even worse, giving into it, that's the very opposite step that one should take if he wants to arrive at peace. So peace is not mixing good and evil and shaking Arafat's hand on the White House lawn and trying to coexist with it somehow. That's what we've been trained to think. But in Judaism, it's the very opposite. There's no coexistence between good and evil, nor is there partnership between good people and evil people. And that's why the God Almighty demands of the righteous that they burn out the evil from the world. And we see that all the time in the Torah. And you shall and you shall burn out the evil from thy midst. The Torah commands that over and over again. And only in such a way will peace reign in the world. So Nekama does bring peace. And the concept of what Pinchas did, of Nekama, it's so powerful that the verse says, it atoned for the children of Israel. And the rabbis ask, What do you mean it atoned? Usually when you have the word atone, that means somebody brought a sacrifice. What sacrifice did Pinchas bring that it should say that he atoned for the children of Israel? And the rabbis answer to teach you that when the blood of the wicked is spilled, it's as if a sacrifice was offered. And so now we know why Pinchas was worthy of receiving the breach shalom because everybody else at the time, Moses and Aaron, they didn't know what to do. They were hiding in their tents, like rabbis today hide in the yeshivas. But the younger Pinchas, he arose and he eradicated the evil. And so, yeah, Pinchas, he gets the Brit Shalom, even though his grandfather, Aaron, I mean, that's the symbol of peace and love and shalom. But evidently, he wasn't strong or strong enough in the area of the artetara, of uprooting the evil. That's what Pinchas was able to do. Aaron is Ohev Shalom or Dev Shalom. But there's the other side of the coin of burning out the evil, of purging the evil. And so Aaron had to vacate the Brit Shalom for his grandson, Pinchas, who was able to do both parts of the peace, who was able to purge the evil. So vengeance and the real concept of peace, those are ideas that so contradict our Western values I'm going to play a short segment right now where Rabbi Kahana, he's on a typical liberal college campus and he's asked exactly what we're talking about now, the whole thing of uh, how can violence lead to peace? After all, peace you make with your enemies. Anyway, let's hear this question and the very brief answer the rabbi gives. Earlier you said that you were for peace and that doesn't seem possible through violence. How can you... How can you achieve peace through violence? That's 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 the first question. That's question. How how can I achieve peace through violence? In World War II, we violently smashed the Nazis, and voila, there was peace. Every war is waged so that someday it will end in peace. Surprise? All right. You said that you you can live side by side with them as long as they're in a different country. Side by side. Right? Why can't you live side by side with them in one country? <laughs> because <laughs> they think it's it's their country. There's not one Arab sitting in the in this room or standing here that doesn't believe 
that both sides of the uh, green line are really Arab. People, I came here thinking that this was a real good campus. Come on, really? <laughs> Academic rating is plummeting rapidly. Plummeting rapidly, people. Go on. I'm sorry. What difference does it make what color you are, what religion you are, or where you come from? You seem to have some big thing about that, that, that Arabs should live in an Arab country and Jews should live in Israel. Yeah, yeah. What yeah, difference yeah. does it make? I didn't say that Swedes shouldn't live inside Israel. The Swedes don't claim that Israel is theirs. Arabs don't want to live in Israel. They want to live in Palestine. And they want to take Israel away and call it Palestine. That's why they are not going to live in Israel, which, which will stay Israel. Can't you grasp that? I guess not. Yeah. Well, he did grasp it. Yeah. That was Robbie Merkahana trying to reason with some college students at Minnesota University back in 1990. Now, the thing about zealotry and Pinchas is famous for being a zealot. The Hebrew word for a zealot is a kanai, and to be zealous is likanot. Now, what's interesting is that the same word for zealous is also the word for jealous, right? Likanot also means jealous. In English, you got two different words, zealous and jealous. I'm sure there's some kind of connection there between those two words, but in Hebrew, it's the same word. Now, what's the difference? Well, if you're mikane bimashu, that means you're jealous of somebody. And that's forbidden in Judaism, to be jealous, to be jealous of your neighbor because he has a nice car. That's what it says in the Torah, don't be jealous, don't hold a grudge. That's something. You're supposed to be happy when your fellow Jew is doing well. You're not supposed to be jealous of him. But to be jealous for something, that's zealous. For instance, when Jewish blood is being spilled, you're supposed to be zealous for Hashem's kavod, for kavod Yisrael, for the honor of Israel. You're not supposed to attend funerals and continue your routine like nothing's happened. The great poet, Uri Tzvi Greenberg, he had a poem that he wrote during the slaughters of Jews in 1929. And he wrote about Jews going to funerals and then eating ice cream. That's not the way it's supposed to be, even though our settlement leaders tell us to continue our routine, continue shopping, as if we continue shopping and drinking coffee, that's some kind of victory. No, you're supposed to be zealous. The army and the government are supposed to be zealous. Zealous to wipe out the enemy. Because what's the opposite of zealousness? Indifference. Apathy. Somehow we think that if you play it cool, that's the right way to be. No, you're supposed to be zealous, like Pinchas was. Another subject that we learned in Parshat Pinchas is the concept of transition. We see at the end of the Parsha, we have the transition from Moses to Joshua. Joshua is appointed. He's going to take the Jewish people into the land of Israel, not Moses. And in a way, when Pinchas acted the way he did, that's also a kind of transition where the new generation, Pinchas, he's willing to do or able to do what the older generation can't do. Where was Aaron? Where was Moshe? Sometimes it takes new blood. Pinchas was coming fresh onto the scene. And so he carries it out, not his great-grandfather Aaron, not his great-uncle Moses. No, the younger Pinchas does it. Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron HaKohen. Just like Shimon and Levi, they're the ones who wiped out Shechem, not Yaakov. It took the next generation 
of Jacob's sons, Shimon and Levi, to do what Yaakov wasn't willing to do, even though he joined in later. But we see that sometimes the older generation is just sometimes stuck. And maybe that's kind of what's going on with the Hilltop youth today. They're willing to do what a lot of their parents can't do because their parents, like us, are very connected to the state and all the trappings of the state, which includes the army and the government and the whole concept of Jewish sovereignty. And so it's hard to go against that. But the younger generation doesn't have any of that. They have no qualms going hand-to-hand combat with the police or even the army. Because like I said once before, they grew up in a different generation. We grew up in the generation of the Six-Day War, Entebbe. How many Entebbe movies were there? You know, they're like two or three Entebbe movies to give us Jewish pride. These kids don't know Entebbe or even the Six-Day War. What kind of Jewish pride do they have regarding the state of Israel? When was the last time when the state of Israel did something to give us Jewish pride? Entebbe and the Six-Day War. But like I said, that's a long time ago. Those who grew up during the fiery demonstrations against Rabin and then later on against all the Hitnat Kut, the withdrawal from Gush Katif and Northern Shomron, what kind of nostalgia do they have about the IDF and the security forces of Israel? Not good experiences. And at the end of the day, a person is a result of those experiences that he experiences on his flesh. And these kids who are activists for the land of Israel, they experienced on their flesh a lot of blows, lots of affliction from who? From the security forces, from the Jewish department of the Shin Bet, all those symbols of the state that we hold so dear to us. So yeah, we're talking transition here, a transition period, like the transition from Moses to Joshua. And maybe I'll end on a real quick answer Rabbi Kahana gives. When somebody talks about that, when he's asked by a student, who's going to replace you? When something happens to you, what's going to happen? And the Rav's going to give a real quick answer. Let's hear it. Yes, so one follow-up. So who's the alternative to you? I have no idea, but I want to tell you one thing. No one was ever indispensable. Moses died and Joshua popped up. If it's not me, it'll be someone else who was just as clever and normal as I am. Well, I guess that was one of the few times Rabbi Ghana was wrong. Nobody did pop up of his stature. And we're left as an orphan generation. Or maybe he wasn't wrong. He was just being humble. That's it for me. If you want to learn the Bible in an authentic Jewish way, tune into my Bible classes, Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes. It's a podcast on Spotify or other platforms. You can just Google Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes and you'll be in for a treat. We learn the simple understanding of the text. We learn about the Jewish heroes, the Davids, the Sauls, the Yoav ben Surias, the Jonathans. We learn about their mighty deeds. We learn of their mistakes and we learn from their mistakes. And only by learning Bible, if you learn it right, you see how Judaism is so focused on the national aspect and not, and not just the individual aspect and his personal mitzvot. We'll see that Judaism and Jewish life is much more than that. It's fighting for the land of Israel and how one sanctifies God's name in a national way. You can only get that by reading the Jewish Bible. Learn what, learn what Jewish life was like before the exile, when Jews were normal, when the Jewish army didn't drop leaflets upon their enemy before bombing them. No, just a small peek at the book of Joshua and, you, and it reveals that there's no such concept of purity of arms. The wars of Joshua, the wars of David, who said in his Psalms, I will crush them and I will not return until they're all wiped out. Yeah, where else are you gonna find out how a Jew fights a war? if not in the Tanakh, 
So tune into that, and I'll be back, God willing, same time, same station.